You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Larnick. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, December 8th, 2022. Um, so unfortunately, this is not a one-off incident. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Clayton Young reports on rising anti-Semitism, both locally and across the nation. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have the December edition of Prescription for Healthcare, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and Medicare for All Indiana. But first, your State House Roundup. Good afternoon. This is your State House Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Benedict Jones. A Marion County judge blocked for the second time Indiana's near total ban on abortion. Marion County Superior Judge Heather Welch approved a request to block the ban in a lawsuit which claims the abortion ban places a burden on religious freedom. IUPUI professor Dr. Jennifer Drobak explained the First Amendment lawsuit in a recent interview with WFHB correspondent Grace Romine. They've also made an argument for a First Amendment argument, a freedom of religion argument. That is, Indiana in its SB1 defined human life as beginning at fertilization. And not all religions, that's a very Christian perspective. Not all religions, I mean, Muslims, they define human life at live birth. Personhood begins with live birth. In in the Jewish tradition, live birth. And in some mm-hmm. conservative Jewish traditions, it's with the naming ceremony at, at 120 days after birth. The lawsuit claims that the state's abortion ban violated Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed in 2015 and signed by then-Governor Mike Pence. Meanwhile, reproductive health care resources are still available for Indiana residents. The Bloomington Planned Parenthood office is located at 41 South College Avenue and can be reached by calling 312-205-8088. That's all for your State House Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnock. At the December 6th meeting of the Bloomington Board of Public Works, City Attorney Mike Roker informed the board that they need to develop protocols for allowing private art using the public right-of-way policy. This comes from a lawsuit where the city denied a student's proposal to install an All Lives Matter mural on Kirkwood Avenue near the Sample Gates. Roker requested that in the meantime, the board should place a moratorium on considering special event permit applications until the policies are revised. 
Um, on November 18th, 2022, in an ongoing case involving Bloomington, the Federal District Court for the Southern District of Indiana issued an order directing the city to promulgate protocols involving the installation of private art in the public right-of-way. Uh, the court ordered the city to adopt those protocols by January 2nd, 2022. In an effort to comply with that order, staff from multiple departments have been working on a policy, and we had originally hoped to have that policy ready for the board's consideration tonight. Unfortunately, we're still working on it, and so we don't have it quite ready for the board to consider. Uh, you will have noted that the original agenda had included the policy as a, an item on the agenda, uh, but it's not there any longer. Um, we do anticipate bringing a policy to the board at the board's regularly scheduled December 20th meeting. That's the last meeting before that January 2nd deadline that was uh, ordered by the court. Um, however, in the interim, in the past, we've seen private uh, individuals and groups utilize the special event application process as a way to uh, request the installation of private art in the right-of-way. Uh, because the city is in the process of revising the protocols that govern the installation of private art in the public right-of-way, and the protocols are uncertain at this moment, both for the public and the board, we are requesting as an interim measure that the board place a moratorium on consideration of special event permit applications until such time as a policy is adopted. Again, we anticipate the policy would be adopted on December 20th, and we further anticipate that at the December 20th meeting after the policy is adopted, this board could consider any pending uh, applications for special events in that same meeting. And so we're asking you to please approve Resolution 22-90, which accomplishes that moratorium. During public comment, local journalist Dave Askins asked how the temporary moratorium would impact Freeze Fest. Kyla Cox Deckard explained why Freeze Fest was removed from the board's agenda. Roker elaborated that the moratorium could affect Freeze Fest. So following up on Mr. Alexander's question about Freeze Fest, um, the inference I drew from the fact that Freeze Fest was not a part of the consent agenda and given the current item on the temporary moratorium was that uh, Freeze Fest is exactly the kind of special event application to install uh, uh, private art in the public right away, and that's why it's not on. And I was just hoping to get confirmation of that fact. Thanks. Because this moratorium affects all special event applications, um, Freeze Fest is a special event application. So it's my assumption that that, first off, is why it was... Um, removed from the uh, consent agenda. Um, I think that uh, it does include art, that art could be subject to that um, review as well once we know what the policy is going to include. Just to confirm that as well, I think we would want to make sure um, uh, given that the policy is in flux right now and we do have a pending special event application that does involve something that might be captured by the policy. We just want to make sure that all of the rules are clear, everything is updated so that this board and the public and applicants and everybody knows what the rules are for special events that involve the installation of art. I do think uh, that the, the public commenter is correct uh, that could potentially impact the, the special event that he referenced. The moratorium on considering of special events applications passed unanimously. Next, the board considered a contract with ENG Paving LLC for a traffic calming project on Maxwell Lane. Project manager Sarah Gomez explained the contract. 
project of maximum lane traffic calming, um, excuse me, will construct traffic calming devices along East Maxwell Lane from Henderson Street to Woodlawn Avenue. Traffic calming devices include, but are not limited to, speed humps, pavement markings, and signs. This traffic calming project was prioritized through the city's resident-led process of the traffic calming and greenways program. The project will be funded by lines 60107 Maintenance of traffic um, and road closure. The construction is scheduled for 2023 to last 30 days with completion by August 8th, 2023. Most work will be completed with short duration mobile operations. Quotes re were received at a Board of Public Works work session on Monday, December 5th, 2022. The board received the following two quotes. ENB Paving, LLC, $36,900. Milestone Contractors, $98,851. ENB Paving, LLC was the apparent lowest responsive and responsible quoter. Uh, we request that um, the board <clears throat> excuse me, approve the contract um, for the Maxwell Lane traffic calming project with EMB paving. Askins asked why there was such a disparity between the bids for the project. Gomez responded. The amount of the bids um, is pretty dramatically different. And I was wondering if there's, I mean, sometimes contractors will say, well, we'll bid on it, but we don't really want to do the job. But heck, if we get selected, uh, we might as well make a lot of money. Um, I don't know, or sometimes the, the contractor doesn't understand the scope of the project and doesn't bid appropriately. Do we have any theories as to why there's this giant disparity in this particular case? Um, thanks. Thank you. So I'll ask staff about that. Uh, do you have any insights in the differences between the bid? Sure. I would say that uh, the public commenter was correct in his both of his um, ideas about why those numbers were so different. Um, I'll also add that ENB Paving recently did a traffic calming project that's similar in scope and size to this project, and the bid came in approximately, you know, within um, five to ten thousand, I think it was. So it's a similar amount of money, and it's what we were kind of expecting to see, whereas the other bid was quite a bit higher. Local resident Betty Rosenagel, who lives nearby Maxwell Lane, asked the board if there was a more descriptive explanation of the project. She also asked why a stop sign wasn't considered for the traffic calming project. My name is Betty Rosenagel, and I live on Park Avenue, one block north of Maxwell. I use it a lot. I walk along it. I cross it to get to the park. Uh, I also cross it not only at my block park, but also at Stull and Fess, sometimes Henderson. Uh, I'm curious about a, a couple of things. One is there have been bids made, but was there a more specific description of what the work would involve uh, what I heard presented sounded kind of catch-all. It will consist of X, but not necessarily all of them, but some of them in terms of what kind of traffic coming. The reason I ask is some neighbors have been told that there are going to be four speed tables or humps in the space of four blocks. And that seems excessive. So is that what's happening? Four 
speed humps? That's, that's one question. Um, and the other is that, is there a reason for not putting a stop sign somewhere in between Woodlawn and Henderson? That's not a very long distance. But if there is no, if there is a reason, is it that the traffic gurus claim people don't stop at stop signs? Project engineer Neil Copper replied to Rosa Nagel's question, expanding on the design of the project and the stop sign issue. When the when the quotes were put out, there was a very explicit plan set included in those quotes. So the contractors were bidding on very specific items. It was not just a general description that was read here tonight. Um, there are four speed humps planned for that stretch. It's a a four block long section um, from Woodlawn to Henderson. It's basically one speed hump per block. Uh, we did actually evaluate whether we could do less speed humps within that section and still um, have effective traffic calming. Unfortunately, with the spacing of the intersections and the desire to slow down traffic before they cross through those intersections, before they cross the marked crosswalks in the area, uh, we felt that four would be the most feasible uh, alternative that we looked at. Um, regarding uh, stop signs instead of speed humps. So um, stop signs do a good job of slowing people down at one point location. Uh, they do not slow people down uh, throughout a corridor. There are actually studies showing that if you put stop signs um, you know, at regular intervals on a street, that drivers can actually speed up in between stop signs trying to make up lost time. Um, so by having kind of more continuous traffic calming through a corridor, you can get a more regular and lower speed as opposed to having stop signs where you have high speeds in between them and low speeds right at the stop sign. So if you really wanted to try to um, slow people down at all of the intersections in between, you'd have to put a stop sign at every single intersection. Um, I don't think I would say that people don't stop at stop signs, but I would say that people tend to lose respect for stop signs that don't meet certain guidelines. So if you go through a stop sign every day and you never see any cross traffic and you never see any reason that you would need to stop, then you start rolling through the stop sign. Some people start ignoring it altogether because you don't see any reason why that stop sign is there. As opposed to a stop sign that is higher volume and you are often waiting for somebody, you know you have to stop there. You know there, there are conflicts that you're paying attention to. The board unanimously approved the contract with ENG Paving to calm traffic at Maxwell Lane. The Bloomington Board of Public Works will meet again for their regular meeting on December 20th. Up next, WFHB correspondent Clayton Young reports on rising anti-Semitism, both locally and on the national level. He speaks with Rabbi Sue Silberberg of the IU Hillel Center and Gunther Jekeli of the Erna Rosenfeld Professor of Jewish and Germanic Studies at IU about a recent anti-Semitic incident in Bloomington. Correspondent Clayton Young has more. In September of 2020, an Indiana University student burned and vandalized a sacred Jewish object outside a student's home. The object in question, a mezuzah, 
symbolizes to the outside world the occupant's relationship with God and their home as a Jewish household. The article states the Bloomington police have the suspect in custody, and if convicted, he's facing a potential of 180 days in jail and a fine of $1,000. But will this punishment be enough to deter the next anti-Semitic incident? Gunther Jekeli, the Erna Rosenfeld Professor for Jewish and Germanic Studies at Indiana University, isn't convinced. Um, so unfortunately, this is not a one-off incident. So. I even saw personally like swastikas uh, on the um, on the sidewalk here in downtown Bloomington. The Anti-Defamation League conducts research on trends related to anti-Semitism and is dedicated to combating extremism. In 2021, the ADL found a 34% increase in anti-Semitic incidents since 2020. The statistic includes reported cases of harassment, vandalism, and assaults. Bloomington is no stranger to anti-Semitic attacks and vandalism. In February of 2022, WTHR reported on racist and anti-Semitic messages sent anonymously to members of Jewish Greek life at Indiana University. And last year in particular, there was a lot of, for our camp, a lot of anti-Semitism. There were swastikas drawn around town. Students felt very vulnerable and um, were really deeply affected. And there was a student who faced harassment on her residence hall floor for, for being Jewish. Anti-Semitism has a long and branching history, breaching both sides of the modern political spectrum. Offensive caricatures and stereotypes of Jewish people often find themselves intertwined with popular culture, hence letting outdated attitudes flourish without further exploration. Because historically, Jews have often been blamed to do that, even from 2000 years ago when Jews have been blamed for killing Jesus, which is a false accusation, but what does it mean? That means that <clears throat> If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, that the Jews, in quotation marks, have killed the Son of God, and that can only be the devil, right? So this demonization has been there for a long, long time, demonization of Jews. Within modern anti-Semitic discourse, a document that remains unfortunately influential is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum describes it as, quote, the most widely distributed anti-Semitic publication of modern times, and entirely a work of fiction intentionally written to blame Jews for a variety of ills. The vandalism of the mezuzah and the trend of anti-Semitism raise safety concerns in the minds of local Jewish leaders. Sue Silverberg of the IU Hillel Center says that anti-Semitic actions have a ripple effect throughout the Jewish community. Whenever Jewish students experience this kind, any kind of anti-Semitism or hate, it affects us because we're here as their support, as their home away from home. So how can regular people combat anti-Semitism and religious prejudices? While the answer may seem simple, it doesn't stop at the source, radicalization. Instead, Tannenbaum, the Center for Combating Religious Prejudice, recommends a more peaceful approach. They recommend actionable practices like calling out hate as it happens and physically talking out one another's differences with fact-based logic. Resources for fighting anti-Semitism in your community along with the story can be found at WFHB.org. For WFHB, I'm Clayton Young.
In today's feature report, we have the December edition of Prescription for Healthcare, a podcast collaboration between WFHB Local News and Medicare for All Indiana. This month's hosts, Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone, interview Tracy Hutchins Getz, Communications Director for the Hoosier Action, the grassroots activist organization. Hoosier Action is working to draw attention to the risk for Hoosiers on Medicaid, including the Healthy Indiana Plan, HIP, as the federal government looks to end the COVID public health emergency. We turn now to the latest edition of Prescription for Healthcare. From Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana. I'm Karen Greenstone, along with Dr. Rob Stone. Hello. Our guest today is Tracy Hutchings-Getz, who is the Communications Director for Who's Your Action? Tracy Hutchings-Getz, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So Tracy, Who's Your Action website begins with the heading, Building the Indiana We Deserve. Will you please talk about Hoosier Action, the mission, and Hoosier Action's organizing efforts in Indiana? Hoosier Action is a five and a half year old community organization. We're nonpartisan and grassroots, and what we really focus on is improving the lives of everyday Hoosiers and making certain that we live in a state where all of us, whatever the color of our skin, whatever the contents of our wallet, are able to impact the decisions that affect our lives. So those can be decisions about our healthcare. Those can be decisions about whether or not our homes are safe to rent in, or those can be decisions about whether the water we drink for our families. So those are some of the things that we work on. Um, We're really rooted in rural and small town Indiana, uh, especially southern Indiana, but our members live uh, up and down the states and we stay connected um, online via Zoom and do in-person meetings and events as well. So your goal of affordable health care has been an important focus of Hoosier Action. Will you please talk about the COVID public health emergency and why it is important to Hoosiers, especially those on Medicaid? Yeah, absolutely. When the COVID-19 pandemic began, both the federal government and then eventually the state government declared public health emergencies, which gave them all kinds of special powers to address the pandemic. Um, And what I'm going to really focus on is the impact of the federal public health emergency because the state public health emergency is over. So the federal public health emergency saved lives by expanding and increasing access to Medicaid in Indiana and really every other state around the country. And it did that by giving the states extra money to run Medicaid programs because they're jointly run by the state and the federal government and by ending Um, involuntary disenrollments, or to put that another way, you don't get kicked off the program unless you want to leave the program. And this also suspended cost sharing or premiums on Indiana's Medicaid programs like the Healthy Indiana Plan or HIP. So what ended up happening in the last couple of years is there's across the state 
have really been able to get the quality affordable care that they need. Over 650,000 new people in this state have enrolled in Medicaid from little kids on SHIP and Hoosier HealthWise all the way up to adults on HIP and retirees who rely on Medicaid. Uh, to pay for their nursing home care. Now one in three Hoosiers are on Medicaid and the program has been running in some ways the best it ever has. Because people aren't required to make those monthly premium payments, they're not getting kicked off of the premium payments or because involuntary disenrollments have been suspended. And this has really improved public health. It's really prevented the spread of COVID and saved lives. And it's actually also saving the public money because the program is easier to run now. Even though we have seen this big increase in enrollment, administrative have not gone up according to a recent evaluation. So it's really been great for Medicaid and great for the 30 plus percent of us who rely on Medicaid. That's an incredible statistic that now one in three Hoosiers are covered by Medicaid and probably then almost every family in the state has some has somebody or knows someone closely who's on Medicaid, but they may not realize that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And one of the reasons why Hoosier families might not realize is that um, the majority of us are not on programs that are called Medicaid, right? We're on programs that might be called HIP or Hoosier HealthWise or Hoosier Care Connect. All of those are actually forms of Medicaid. They've just branded by the state and don't have Medicaid in the name. But all of those are forms of Medicaid in Indiana. And where we are right now with the the public health emergency, we know that there there's an end date coming up, which I'm sure just strikes fear into the hearts of anyone who's enrolled in Medicaid right now as part of the program. Can you talk about that for us? Yeah, so we don't know yet when the federal government is going to end the public health emergency, but strong evidence indicates that it will be in 2023. Um potentially as early as January, but it's really far more likely that it's going to be March. And what's going to happen then is the state is going to have to process everybody's application again for Medicaid. So this is a process called redetermination, and the state is going to do it over the course of 12 months. And it's going to be a tremendous amount of work because the program is larger than it's ever been. And there there is a real risk that an estimated 750,000 children and adults are going to lose their health care just because something is going to go wrong over the course of processing these applications. So we are really concerned that the PHE ending, the public health emergency ending, could result in a huge loss of coverage for Hoosiers. So we've been working really hard with a whole set of advocates across the state to make certain that the state of Indiana has the best possible plan in place for when the public health emergency ends. Um, and talking to folks like you to get the word out to Medicaid members that they need to make certain their information is up to date with the state and that if they receive any directions from FSSA, that's the Families and Social Services Administration, who administers our Medicaid programs, that they get any directions, they should follow them. 
um, and that if they have any problems, they do have rights to appeal. Those are some of the pieces of information that we're working to get out to make certain that more of us keep the care that we all deserve. It sounds like an administrative nightmare, what you're talking about, but I'm hopeful because Hoosier Action has had some very impressive results organizing around defeating the work requirement for Medicaid patients and rent relief during COVID. Tracy, what are you personally most proud of? Oh, yeah. I think because it was back when I was a healthcare organizer, I think it has to be the Medicaid work requirements fight, um, which was back in 2019. Indiana attempted to implement unnecessary new requirements to the Healthy Indiana Plan, and that could have kicked off an estimated 75,000 people. One tenth of the risk that we're looking at yet, but still would have been really devastating to those who need healthcare. And the majority of people on Medicaid already, and we know that those burdensome new requirements would basically have just resulted in more churn in the system. And so we organized for several months to push back and ultimately helped find the plaintiff for the lawsuit, which has resulted in an end to the work requirements. And we did actually just find out, I mentioned earlier, the new report about Indiana's Medicaid programs, that even though the work requirements requirements were never implemented, they still wasted a bunch of public just setting up the administrative side of things. And as we go into this year's legislative session, we're really looking at like, how do we save money and reduce the administrative burden of this program so that it's really about keeping people enrolled and making certain they can get the best care that they need. And finally, Tracy, what is your prescription for health care? My prescription for healthcare is to put people first and profits last. So Tracy Hutchings gets thank you for your important work at Who's Your Action and for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. For more information on Who's Your Action, please go to the website whosyouraction.org. We will also link to Who's Your Action on our webpage on wfhb.org. You can also listen to past interviews of Prescription for Healthcare by searching under Programs, click News and Public Affairs to find Prescription for Healthcare. This is Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone for Prescription for Healthcare, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana on WFHB Community Radio. To your good health, everyone. Stay safe and thank you for listening. We may never see this moment, a place in time.